0: All right, now we're recording. So one more time, thank you for joining us for another Francis Tavern Museum Evening Lecture. Um, As a reminder, um, put your questions in the Q&A chat box if you are joining us online. Now, let me introduce tonight's speaker, finally. Um, Our speaker tonight is Nancy Rubin Stewart, and she is an award-winning author of eight books and specializes in women and social history. She has also written for the New York Times, Huffington Post, The Washington Post, and other national magazines. And I am now going to turn it over to you, Nancy. So you can join us here at the podium. Technology never does quite what you want it to do. <laughs> Never
1: does. Here we
0: go. Yes, yes, you do. All right. Now I'll turn it over to Nancy.
1: (laughs) Hi, welcome. Uh, Thanks for being here to hear about Benjamin Franklin's women. Um, I always start a book with a question, and uh, my question was when I started this book 27 years ago: What's with the marriage? I just don't understand it. So that led to a wild goose chase. A lot of research um, brought it to a couple of publishers and they said, well, the male, the historical view, written mostly by men, uh, was that Deborah was a stupid woman in the provincial and she really didn't, you know, should never have been Ben Franklin's right, uh, maid. But actually that's a, a 21st century or even 20th century uh, view because in those days colonial women had a certain sphere that was at home, the home in the hearth. And it was pretty tough to do all of that and raise children. In any case, um, I waited. I put all my research in the back pile, <clears throat> back drawer, and about ten years later, I took it out again. And uh, once again, that's the response I got. But around 2016, I started to think, because the published, you know, yet again one of those songs on colonial women. You know, I think maybe there's, there really is a good book here. So I brought it to my then publisher, Still Publisher, Big Press, and I said, okay. We'd like you to do it, but we want to include his other women. So um, what I discovered in all those years that have gone by that I didn't have to spend my life in an academic library looking at the huge volumes of the transcriptions, which I'll talk about a little later, of, the, of Benjamin Franklin's letters, there are 30,000 of them at least. Uh, but rather than I found out, actually halfway through my research on, not even halfway, as I started this research that a lot of these letters had been digitized and they were in the library Congress. Without going any further into the process, I'll just say that Benjamin Franklin loved women. Uh, He was attracted to them, um, wildly attracted to them, admits it from an early age. But he found that the charge between them was as dangerous as the charge for electricity, and just as shocking. So um, it it began a long time ago, um, actually, when he was a teenager. Now, I'm going to go through some of these slides and probably go back over one or two. We all know Ben Franklin, right? What do you think about him? What are the first things that come to mind? Any, anybody? Okay, we know that he was a scientist. We know he was a founding father. He signed the Declaration of Independence. We know he's a diplomat. These are our views of him. Probably this is what we learned about him in high school. And that's all we knew. And we knew that he was thrifty and he was always the master of discretion. And here are just some of, the, uh, well, some of the statements from mostly from before Richard's almanac. His, his, uh, his almanac that's written much later. In all of them, he is warning about discretion and reason over emotion. You would see them all beware of everything. Only use your reason for life. Do not succumb to emotion. And of course, these are the most famous. Early to bed, early to rise. And better slip with tongue, with foot than tongue and eat to live, don't live to eat. Of course, the last one, everyone's laughed about that one when they look at portraits of Ben Franklin much later than Um, they want. And of course, what else we think about Ben Franklin is he is the master of thrift. He wrote The Way to Wealth. And people think about him as somebody who's an astute businessman and always, always thrifty. And that was the message that he preached in greater America. Even at 16, he, he loved women. I mean, he loved and he did this throughout his life to take the voice of a, of a woman and to make fun of society or make fun of some of the chivalrous in society. And when he was 16, he decided he was working for his brother as an apprentice uh, in his print shop. He decided to write a series of essays and uh, in the name of, in the voice of a widow, Silence good. And of course one of them, which there were 13 of them, his brother didn't know he was the author he talks about the, how, how much he admired the night walkers, the prostitutes, and why, because they were great for business. Uh, they made people happy, and they're particularly good for the shoemakers, uh, because of course the night walkers wore out the shoes quicker than other women. So this was, uh, you know, this is just an, one example of the kind of wit that he had and his his skating pen uh, when he saw the hypocrisies, in particular then of Boston's uh, Puritan. Of uh, um, Cotton Mather and that whole crowd. He fled finally to Philadelphia, couldn't stand his brother treating him like an ordinary apprentice, including beatings, and fled to Philadelphia. Before long, he had a job with a printer. And before long, he was asking John Reed, a carpenter, if he could have rooms with him. And that is where he wrote in his own autobiography I made some courtship to Miss Reed at this time. And he said he loved and received, admired and respected Miss Reed. And he thought she did too. Of course, it didn't escape Ben that Mrs. that Deborah, uh, after all, had a dowry. So um, we, we know that. Um, anyway, this is a picture much later of Deborah. She's probably in her late 40s, um, maybe early 50s. And uh, you can see she's she's pretty well fed uh, and actually a little a little fashionable at that time because by then they were wealthy. But what we do know is she was very outgoing, uh, and her mother had a. a, a sort of a thriving solve and ointment business. And I suspect that that is how Deborah learned to be such a good financial manager. Her mother probably had her sister uh, in, with the records and the bookkeeping and so on. So uh, this is fine. So Ben finally uh, proposes to her and they become the betrothed. In the meanwhile, a few other things happened. One of them, uh, this sort of slimy deputy governor of Pennsylvania said to him, oh, I'm going to treat you to a uh, uh, transatlantic journey to London, and you will then buy um, printing equipment and come back and help set up your print shop. And Ben believed him, so he was scheduled in November uh, of 19, i'm sorry, 1724 to um, be there and to buy printing equipment, and it's all going to be paid for by this governor, which of course it wasn't. In the meanwhile, this is September. John John Reed suddenly died. And nobody expected that. And uh, Mrs. Uh, Reed was, was horrified. Um, she was stunned. Uh, she did have herself and went in business. She did receive a widow's portion of some of his property. But she looked at Deborah, and she looked at what And she said, you know, you can't get married now. You're both 18. Uh, let's wait until Ben comes back, and he's established in business, and you get married. And so they exchanged promises and so on at the ship. He left like in November of that year, and uh, Deborah waited for him to write. He did not write. And when he finally did write, he wrote that he didn't know when he was going to come back, if at all. Deborah was shocked. And what was Ben doing in England? Well, we know he had, uh, had to get a job because guess what? That governor wasn't paying any of those bills. So he had to he had to make a living quickly. He couldn't buy any printing equipment. Then um, also he had um, a friend who went with him, and pretty soon he was making passes at this friend's girlfriend. Uh, so you know he had he was um, he was a pretty randy young man. We do know in his autobiography, and he doesn't give us the dates. It's a little out of order in his chronology of things, but we do know that um, he did. Um, because he writes it a little later, he says, I began to make the acquaintance of low women, uh, which we know were his first sexual experiences. All right, so he's over there. He's going to coffee shops and theater and so on. He's working hard as a printer. And he's very skilled. Deborah is moping. When she gets that letter, she's stunned. She doesn't know if he'll ever come back. Many, many uh, Americans went to England and didn't come back. So her mother and her friends prevailed upon her and she accepted uh, suitors, other people. And sure enough, she soon married in August of 1725 uh, an Englishman who would come here and emigrate. And this emigre was named John and uh, John Rogers and he was a potter. And um, two months into the marriage, she discovered, guess what? He was married. So Deborah ran back to her mother wouldn't take his name, ended the marriage, was extremely upset, you can't get a divorce so easily in Colonial Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in fact it's almost impossible, not only that, Mr Rogers had taken her dowry, and Mr Rogers was soon in trouble in business, and soon he owed a lot of money, and another year later, off he goes to the West Indies, and reports begin to come back, that he'd been killed in a ball. This is leaving Deborah in a very peculiar position. She's neither married nor single. She's technically married and she can't get a divorce. Of course, all her girlfriends are getting married and have children and so on. She becomes dejected and withdrawn and unsocial. And by the time Ben comes back in 1726, she's a changed woman. She's just a woman apart. Um, does, does he court her? No. Does he apologize then? No. He's busy setting up eventually a print shop He has a few other jobs in between, and he begins to court other women. And the funny thing is that the fathers of these women all said to him that they didn't want him for a son-in-law. Why? Well, because printers made poor providers. So there's Ben going on now to 1730. He's gotten rid of the partner he used to have in his print shop He's an alcoholic. He now owns this print shop. And he goes to Mrs. Reed in August of 1730. And he says, uh, "I, I feel guilty about Deborah. And it's my fault she's in the situation she's in. And Mrs. Reed, to her credit, those are his exact words. Says, well, it's partially my fault too. I encouraged her to get married, and not wait for you indefinitely. So the next thing we know in Ben's autobiography, and again, Ben has a way of skirting over all important issues emotionally. Next thing we know is he writes in his autobiography, I took her to wife on September 1st, 1730. Now, what do you think that means? Any idea? they move in together. So that became a common law marriage. Now, common law marriages weren't unheard of, but it was unusual. And there was a lot of consternation among people, but um, they remained married for 43 years. Now, Deborah was um, very happy to be with Ben, even though it was, well, not a, not a church wedding or anything like that. And uh, she moved quickly into his house, and she soon took his little stationery shop, which wasn't doing too well, and turned it into a flourishing general store. And I'm sure she must have helped him with his early finances and record keeping, and maybe even the print shop, I don't know. But in any case, six months into the marriage, I'm going to come back to that. One day, Ben came home with a bundle, a blanket, and inside the blanket was a baby boy. Well, who's, he said, this is my son, William. Well, who's the mother? Where's the mother? Now, historians have written books, probably libraries, on who this mother could be. We don't know who the mother was. Of course, many people think it was the the mother of a prostitute. But one distinguished scholar, J. Leo May, said, and this is what I think, probably, uh, it was somebody he had a room. Fairwith, whose husband was away at sea or something, and uh, after the baby was born, he was going to return. She passed him on to Ben, so Ben brought him to Deborah. Deborah did not want to take care of this child. Uh, his name was William. Um, she's 22 at the time and um, not really ready for this. And but finally, she agrees out of her love for Ben that she you will know, raise this child, William. And this is William. Much later in life, of course, he that became the Tory governor. Um, of New Jersey. I want to go back to these I'm talking about Deborah as a stupid provincial woman provincial yes stupid I don't think so. Um, the American philosophical society uh, has copies of some of her notes and their ledgers and if you read her correspondence now bear in mind and thanks to feminist scholarship uh that um we know that women in the 18th century colonial era did not uh they were taught to read and write enough to be able to compute uh to you know read the bible and all of that uh, but they were not taught spelling or syntax so looking at her correspondence it's almost illegible uh, the spelling and so on you have to sound it out and think about it a little these are just a few examples you see them on the screen but if you look at the one below my dear child, which is the way she and Ben addressed each other, here's an example. She said, I've inquired about Thomas Miller's houses, Amos Struttle had bought them, at one-third more than their worth. Indeed, I would not have given half above what he has given for them. So you can already see this business brain is working, uh, and she, Ben does write in his, both in his autobiography and later in comments to other people that he was lucky to have Deborah for his wife. Uh, that she was so frugal that she was really helped him. She was like a fortune to him. Um, so we know that, that she worked by his side, to the point, by the way, when he had to make a trip, even early in his marriage, he did this incredible thing. He assigned her power of attorney, absolutely unheard of for a colonial woman. And many times later, when he went away, he did the same thing. So we know that um, she really was, um, you know, a helpmate. And again, as I say, in those days, women were not expected to be intellectual or any other kind of equal to the men. Men had their own world, men's sphere, women had their own sphere. It was not considered incompatible. A good helpmate was considered ideal. So a lot of this interpretation, or well, I guess say cursory, in, uh, in, uh, you know, analysis of who she was. Um, Deborah and Ben throve together. Uh, he, as you know, became uh, prominent. Uh, he was elected to the assembly, then clerk. Um, he became the postmaster of Pennsylvania. Um, he became very active civically. He created the American Philosophical Society. paved the streets. Uh, he wanted sidewalks, uh, illumination at night. Um, he started a lending library, a fire company. You know, and then all his inventions by Ogle, uh, the Franklin Stowe, there are many, many others, which I won't take the time for. You probably know about them. So, brilliant, brilliant um, inventor and scientist, natural scientist. They called them natural philosophers. But in any case, in um, 1732, Deborah finally had a child. It's a little late. Two years later, it was a little late for having a, a baby. So, you know, two years after the wedding. But anyway, uh, child was Frankie, Francis, and they adored him. Now, Ben for years had been preaching, this may sound a little familiar, about the importance of inoculation against smallpox. It wasn't an inoculation with a hypodermic needle, it was really removing the pus from somebody who's sore and putting it in somebody else's arm or trunk or wherever, and usually this made them immune to smallpox. So he'd been preaching this in the Pennsylvania Gazette, his newspaper. Anyway, 1736, his little Frankie, who he adored is very ill with dysentery. And the smallpox epidemic has once more uh, ravaged Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. And he can't, he can't inoculate Frankie, because Frankie is terribly ill with dysentery. So Frankie dies. And I'm not going to dwell on that, except that this was a huge hurt uh, and sorrow for, for him. And there's a whole, <laughs> you'll see in the book, Some people have misinterpreted that. In any case, Deborah does not have another child for another seven years. Um, And and again, the historians wonder and say, oh, it's because Ben didn't like her anymore and he must have been involved with other women. Well, we don't know anything about that. Uh, He does write a laudatory poem about her to the Masons, which for some reason must have been important uh, for some reason. It's been preserved about these things. his plain country Jane was so thrifty, she wasn't beautiful, but she's a great helpmate, and she supported him and she lifted a lot of burdens from him. So we it seems to have been a pretty pretty good marriage, at least at that point. Um, he now becomes politically active. Uh, the pens, who are the proprietors of the colony of Pennsylvania, uh, unlike the royal colonies, all all but two others, all but all the Two others uh, run the colony. Yes, there's an assembly, mostly Quakers, but the Pens are the ones who really call the shots. Now, there are a lot of disruption, hostilities, massacres, gang things that happen in the western frontier of the state, uh, Ohio River Valley, and they need the Pens to help. Um, pay money to support these soldiers. Yes, the British come over, and of course they get mixed up eventually, not only in the War of, of Austrian Succession, part of that, and then it's the, the uh, French and Indian War, and it's a mess. And Ben is calling people to the Pens. The Assembly won't do anything because they're mostly the the Quakers, and it's Ben who organizes militias uh, and and fights them. And the Pens consider him a very dangerous man. That has been a book by that. But anyway, Franken is. Both revered and he is uh, hated. So he has a lot of enemies. Now a lot of people have asked about his wanderings. Now, I mean you've probably seen these. If you look on the internet you'll see some silly things that say he had 12 legitimate children or he had men. How much of a womanizer is he? That new musical 1776? Once again it's a revival of the old one. It means basically, uh, you know, it, it refers to Ben and his womanizing, But I want to show you this. This is a letter that the historians kept quiet for 200 years. It looks like it's innocently named Old Mistress Apologue, but the real title at least the 20th century historians change it, advice to a young man, well, to a friend on choosing a mistress. And the content of that is, and he goes through eight reasons why an older woman is better as a mistress than a younger one. And some of it's a little graphic. Um, I don't know um, whether it's body writing B A W D Y that's fun, or sometimes the vote among educated men privately at that time, or whether it's for real. But there are eight reasons that are listed, and a lot of it sounds like personal experience. But I'm going to give you the 21st century snarky view of these eight reasons, which is that older women—and he doesn't mean old. Old in those days was for a woman was 42. So we're talking about women. Their 30s, maybe 35. uh, He gives these reasons, but I'm going to give you that interpretation. It is that they don't yell, the older women, they don't swell, and they're grateful as hell. So, um, yeah, if you read the book, um, you'll enjoy seeing the reasons. And as I say, some of it's pretty graphic. So, this kind of adds to the aura or the view of this man was you know, he continued to be uh, loved women, let's put it that way. Now, by the 1750s, he's appointed uh, the deputy colonial postmaster of all the colonies. And he starts to tour all the post offices down south and of course in New England. Now he's uh, at that dangerous age of 48. And um, he goes to Boston and he meets this lovely 23 year old woman named Catherine Ray. We don't have her picture. Uh, but she was very bright, and she adored him. Now I have to say, by then he is an international celebrity. You know, he's already done his electricity with lightning rod, and he's known everywhere. Uh, but um, they have quite a an infatuation, and they exchange lead well. Anyway, he she has to go back to Rhode Island to, to Water Island, actually, on um, father's sick. So he volunteers two-day carriage ride to take her back to to escort her back to Rhode Island. We don't know where they stayed we do know there was a post driver and there was a woman who stayed with them for a while but not the whole way but we do have their letters and i urge you if you're reading the book um please take a look at them they're quite delightful i don't have all of them in there but um here's one that i've exerted it from from a letter uh in which he writes you promised to send me kisses in the wind your favorite is come with the snowy fleeces and i want to stop here because apparently he had asked her to, um, he's gonna teach her multiplication. How one and one make three. Um, but he writes this, your fate has come with the snowy fleeces which are as pure as your virgin innocence. White is your lovely bosom and is cold. So she ultimately rejected him. And they, they, the, they eventually continue to write and they do eventually become friends. But it's an interesting little side uh, infatuation that he has with her, which is reported, thank goodness we have those letters. Not all of them. They deliberately destroyed a number of them, which they write about. Uh, and, you know she she's worried. She says, please get rid of some of these. So but we have quite a few of them. Now the pens are giving trouble, nobody's paying taxes. Things are getting bad to worse in, in Pennsylvania. And the assembly says then you've got to go to England, plead with the pens. If that doesn't work, plead with the crown. Ben wants to make this into a royal colony like most of the others. Uh, So he agrees to go and he goes home and he tells Deborah. And Deborah says, I'm not gonna go. Historians have scratched their head over this through generations and many books. Why didn't she go? Well, the theory traditionally among these historians is that she knew she was stupid and provincial and she wouldn't fit into the cultured Londoners and she would, she would be she would ashamed, she would make, make Ben ashamed. That's the traditional view. But I have a different interpretation. I think there's a couple of other things that were going on. Number one, she was pretty prominent by that time. She'd been a well known businesswoman, she'd been involved in the post office. Um, she was sort of Ben's deputy husband, if you will, when he was away, and he was away many, on many occasions. Uh, and she was comfortable, she had many friends among the elite. Uh, And she had a certain place and stature um in um in in Pennsylvania. Her daughter, and this is the other point. I don't talk about this too much in the book. Her daughter, Ben forever was trying to match his daughter with one of his English friends. And this was horrible to Deborah. The idea that her daughter, who was born in 1743, Sally or Sarah, would be going to England and she'd never see her again. So I think that. Probably he was frightened that if they went to England, and Sally got married or that she was getting to be of marriageable age, that would be the end of it. In any case, she didn't go. So Ben moved in, rented rooms from a widow, a middle-class widow in central London. It's at 36th Craven Street. The townhouse, as you can see from this picture, is still there. It's now actually a house museum. Um, I've been outside of it myself, not in, because it wasn't open when I came with my husband. But um, they lived there together. Margaret rented rooms. What we don't know a lot about her. We have a few little things. She liked them, like Deborah, you know, didn't love to write a lot. Uh, She had a daughter named Polly, um, who by the way was always, well, Ben was sort of competing, Polly who he adored um, with his own daughter, Sally. So it's kind of a sad part of the story, but back to Margaret, Margaret was really sort of a, and and from what I understand, sort of an English version of of, of Deborah. Um, Five years, he's only supposed to be there a year, maybe less, five years he's there, and he keeps writing to Deborah he's going to come home. He does not solve anything um, with the pens, ultimately, and um, we don't know what happened to her letters, five years of her letters. We have his letters to Deborah Yes, he sent her many presents. he sent her English, China, he sent her furniture, he sent her British fabrics, he sent her candle snuffers, um, tablecloths, all of this, he really became quite an um, angle um, But, and we know that Deborah wrote regularly because he actually writes that in his letters to her, I have your letter of, and it goes week after week after week, but we don't know what happened to them, I guess they weren't considered important. In any case Deborah is alone with Sally. Um, and she's longing to see them. She misses him terribly, and uh, he doesn't come home. He keeps saying, I'll come home on the spring ships. I'll come home on the fall ships. And then one thing or another. We don't know exactly why he stayed. Uh, His son, he had taken with him and and had him trained as an attorney. But that's, uh, excuse me, another whole part of the story, which I'm not going to spend the time on now. So he does finally come back in 1763, and Deborah's ecstatic. And she's thrilled. The only thing is, Ben keeps writing. I want to go back to England. He writes to all his friends. So much better than living here. And Deborah catches wind of it. And we do know when William came back that they had a big fight about it. She didn't want him to go back, and he did, and she wasn't. So uh, Ben, to placate her, said, "Okay, I'll build us a house." And he designs it, and they start building it, and then so on. And then the assembly says, really got to go back. Don't forget the 1760s, and the revolution is beginning to heat up. Uh, There's a lot of tensions, um, and he agrees to go back. And once again, Deborah refuses. And it must have had a huge fight because, or several, because William writes to one of their English friends that um, you know things were, this was pretty bad. He also wants to take Sally, the daughter, and she, of course, won't let him do that, so he does demand from her and we know it from one of her later letters, he does demand okay if you're not going to go I don't want to hear you complain, I only want to get cheerful letters from you. Once again he rooms with Mrs. Stevenson. Um, he uh, Sally wants to get married uh, to this Englishman who is a debtor. And you can imagine Ben, who's known as you know, Dr. Franklin and the way to wealth and all of this, is going to marry a debtor. Um, uh, you know, Sally had been dating, so uh, been accepting courtship from some very distinguished people in Philadelphia. Uh, anyway, Deborah finally allows her to marry him. And when Ben finds out, he will not write to Deborah for several months. And uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty bitter. But you know, uh, to me. I think it's, you know, Deborah's, she's been independent. She's been taking care of his books and his affairs and so on many different ways, entertaining his relatives and so on. I think this for her was her little streak of independence. She knew if she probably, she was worried that, you know, maybe maybe Sally would run off with Richard. I mean, let them get married. And so she does. But soon after they do, and when Ben does write back to Deborah, he writes that um mrs stevenson is the greatest lady in england and um, you can imagine what what that felt like for deborah and um yeah it's um and then later he, he also writes to her daughter many years later that living with mrs stevenson were among the sweetest and happiest years of his life so you know he obviously had more than just a passing uh she was much more than his landlady We you know she nursed him she outfitted them in British clothes. She introduced them to her friends. They were seen together all the time. They were considered an item. Uh, in fact, his, his friend, Williams, a different William, William Strahan, wrote to Deborah, even the first time uh, that that was in England, and said, you better get over here and protect your interests. He's very popular for ladies. Deborah refused. Now, to Deborah's credit, of course, the Stamp Act People here misinterpreted Ben's job over there. He soon became the colonial agent for all the colonies. As I say, things were heating up pretty badly in terms of the revolution. And at one point, there's a mob that comes to start tearing down that house, which, by the way, she was responsible for completing. And she had no training in that. Of course, she had to hire people, but even so. And uh, she and her brother defend this house against the mob at gunpoint until the next morning. Finally, many of Ben's friends come together and uh, scare off this mob.
0: So this is a
1: pretty pretty feisty woman. In any case, Ben stays in England for 10 years. He pleads with Parliament and the Whigs, so that you know, maybe there won't be a revolution, but he's involved in it whether he likes it or not. And eventually the British Crown uh, turns on him in a, in a really ugly way. Uh, and it's at that point that um, he becomes Americanized. In the meanwhile, Deborah has had a stroke and it becomes ill. Uh, her grand their grandchildren. Ben is always talking about Polly, Mrs. Stevens's daughter's grandchildren, and preparing them. It's, uh, it's it's kind of poignant to read that. But anyway, Deborah uh, is warned by the doctor that uh, Ben is warned that Deborah may not live too long, given that history of strokes. And indeed, she does die in December seventeen seventy four, and Ben has. Didn't, already disillusioned with England, he's not ready to, he's not embracing in England. Nobody, no, no historian can figure out why he remains there at that time. But anyway, she dies alone in Philadelphia. He does not return until after Lexington and conquered to America. Um, so I want to move on from Deborah uh, to the other women that my publisher asked me to write about. Um, Ben, as you know, does sign the Declaration of Independence. He does become involved helping Washington with the Army and many other things. He makes a journey to Canada. That's where you got that Martin he wears, that you see sometimes in the pictures rather than a wig. Uh, and uh, he goes to France as one of the commissioners, there are three of them, to plead for money for our troops. And uh, eventually the other two commissioners are dismissed. He's very successful. Yes. He does hobnob with everybody, he does go to salons and balls and meet people, and as John Adams crustedly points out, he, all the women are always making tea and fawning over him, he's staying up late at night, and sleeping late in the morning, and he's slow on writing his reports back. But the point is, Ben was pretty astute. He knew that in order to seduce the French, if you will, and get the money out of that treasury, he had to favor with them, they had to trust him, they had to like him, they had to believe him, they had to then weren't ready to understand his situation was pretty bad in America. And so indeed, it is through that, that we are grateful that uh, through those loans that we were able to defend, defeat the British. Uh, before I go any further, though, I just want to say, was he a womanizer? Charles Wilson Peel who later becomes a distinguished artist. Um, was studying art as a very young man in England, and he lived in the Stevenson house. And one day, because he knew Ben and so on, and in the same house, he opened the door to the room. And lo and behold, this is what he saw. He quickly shut the door and went back to his own room. But like all good art students, uh, he sketched what he saw. The second one is even more graphic. We don't know who the lady is. Uh, Anyway, this was another one that the historians kept secret for another 200 years. Uh, but now you can even see it on the internet. All right, we've been in France. Um, ben soon has a romance with this charming and very beautiful, supposed to be the most beautiful woman in France, uh, young woman. She's 33. She's married, an aristocrat. She has several children. She is uh, uh, sort of um, she is involved with the piano forte and really a proponent of that over the harpsichord She's very talented and well-known. In fact, Bogarini devotes his sixth piano sonata to her. Uh, but anyway, they have quite a romance. There are hundreds of letters from her. She's sophisticated, uh, lots of teasing, letters, lots of romance. She had the shameless in her flirtation with him. She would sit on his lap in public and kiss him and call him Mon cher papa. Uh, and there are some charming letters between them. And a lot of repartee. But I'm going to cut to the chase, so it's time for comments. Uh, when it came to the last favor, she did not grant it to him, and this upset him very much. And so, of course, now, Ben is in his 70s at this point, mid-70s. He says to her, she said, I want you all for myself. And he said, well, if you're not taking good care of my cherub, meaning him, am I making my cherub skinny rather than well-nourished, then I have every right to go on and be with other women. And she says, no, I want you all for myself. And of course, he does begin to have a relationship with uh, Madame Helicius, who was the hostess of famous uh, pre-revolutionary salon with many of the major philosophers and scientists and thinkers of the day. Uh, and she was a character. She was uh, unconventional. She had a um, husband, she was a widow. Uh, she, um, <laughs> she had a menagerie in her and gardens, not, not the nice sort of manicured French garden. It was a wild place with crazy plants and all kinds of animals. She had aviaries in the trees. She had 18 cats in the house that were all decorated with silk ribbons and so on. And she was uh, scattered. She had three single men living with her, two were abbies and one was a young medical student. And they kind of kept track of her. So Ben would go there, all dressed up, some funny funny scenes. And he'd get there, and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry. Um, well, she just left from Paris. She had another date, and she completely Forgot. And so this went on for about a year. Um, Some a delightful repartee between them and things that happened, which you'll see in the book. But uh, he finally proposed to her and proposed to her and proposed to her. And she kept refusing. She was very modern. She just didn't want to be owned by another man. And uh, so she rejected him. Actually, at one point, he becomes I think almost violent in his proposition to her, proposal to her. And at that point, she flees to tours but for several months for him to cool down. So ultimately, it's ironical, but here's Ben. And uh, somehow these women at least seem to have put him aside at this point. Why was he flirting with him? Well, I mean, man is in his 70s, but maybe he he still loved women. What can I say? So um, I'm just gonna leave it at that. What I discovered was that our what our iconic view of Ben Franklin is this ultimate man of reason and genius and reason uh, who preaches this to everybody and everything he does, that beneath that, and not just because of the women, you can also read some of the political letters, but this is a man um, who I think put really struggled with passion versus prudence. So I'm going to just leave you with, um, and I hadn't intended that when I started this book, I just learned this from, from the research. I'm Just going to leave it with a quote. If passion drives, let reason hold the reins. Thank you very much. It's been fun to talk to you. More questions, I'm happy to answer them. I hope you do. Yes. We have a question from the folks online. Yep. Um, you mentioned that a printer was not a wealthy profession. What was Ben and Deborah's financial situation like in their early marriage? Very before yes. postmaster payroll. Before the postmaster payroll. Uh, very difficult. Um, they worked day and night. Deborah was filled with energy, as was Ben. And he writes about that later when um, his son-in-law, you know, was basically going to live off of the, the wealth that uh, they worked very hard. I mean, you can see from his, just from his accomplishments alone uh, what he what he did. And you can see from her because you know she ran, she helped her run the postmaster ship. Uh, he even gives her credit for that in, in some of his letters. She raised his children. She had, he had relatives who came and stayed for weeks on end. She supervised the house. In the beginning, they had a very difficult time. Uh, she had to have them take care of them with him. She lost that first child. People wonder why did she, what happened in those seven years that she didn't have children? It was very unusual. Ben, in fact, has written a treatise on that, in which he documents because he documented everything. The typical colonial woman had eight children. So, what happened in those seven years? Um, I'll just tell you that there is a historian, well, he'd written in the Smithsonian, when I read this and I saw red. Um, and accused Deborah him of um, of Deborah of not letting letting ben, uh inoculate little Frankie, and that therefore he hated her, uh, and so on. So you'll see in the book. But um, you no, know, my theory about Deborah is she probably uh, had trouble conceiving. She may have had stillborns. She may have had miscarriages, not uncommon uh, in those seven years. It isn't until 1743 that she finally does have Sally. So by then. You know, they're doing very well. They're, they're a lot more comfortable. Um, and he does have this position first as clerk of the assembly and later as a member of the assembly. And of course, his inventions um, are wildly popular, including the Franklin stove, which he says, he, he didn't even get a patent on it. He was encouraged to. He said, no, he said, I think inventors should make things things available to to everybody and not just keep them and make money on them. So by then he must have been more comfortable, but also you have to remember that to prevent civic duty and doing well by others is, I think his most important drive. Other questions? Yes, sir. Is the Franklin line still alive today? I'm sorry. Is the Franklin line still alive Yes, it is. Uh, I was speaking in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, this spring, early summer. And a woman came and, um, yes, they're one of the uh, descendants um, and introduced herself. And, you know, Sally had eight children. So, you know, think about that. I mean, uh, there are probably people who don't, maybe, you know, into marriages over generations. Probably there are, there are others too, but, but certainly, yes, it's still alive and well today. Yes, yes. What was his uh, concept of marriage? He spoke um, about what we should have as a mistress, but if you said it, I, I get it. But what was his concept of marriage? Well, I think that we have to remember that we can't use our 21st century judgment of what marriage should be today. You know, chivalrous, romantic, all of that. You know, uh, compatible souls, all that. 18th century and earlier, you know, life was tough survival was tough. you know people the average woman died at age 42 and the men soon after. So you know just um, imagine no no aspirin imagine no antibiotics. imagine you know a cut can lead to a terrible infection. Um, so life doing the laundry would take a woman a whole entire day. So a woman so uh, it was practical. Now Americans didn't demand that their children marry the way the Europeans did, but it was practical and it was judged, as these fathers indicated when they rejected him as a future son-in-law that it had to be practical, that you wanted a good provider for your daughter, so it was a practical, uh, probably financial, if you will, as well as social, arrangement. different than today. I don't hear a lot about love uh, I mean, I do from these flirtations and things, but I don't hear a lot in 18th century literature, uh, except you get, well, later on, you get into the English Romantic movement and all that, but that's later. You don't hear a lot about that in those marriages. Is it practical? Is a good wife, a good helpmate, all of that important? Yes. Another question? Yes. It's interesting he sets up this duality of passion and reason, passion and reason. But not what you might expect, maybe this is also not you know, contemporary, but you, you might expect something that where morality would enter into that, into that duality, right? That you should do good, you know, reason, passion, and what about doing good? What about morality? Maybe that answers the question of what, what was this view of marriage, because it obviously doesn't fit into this. Yes, I agree. And of course that was again, it was something that I delved into and discovered as I went further in the research. But um, also, don't forget, um, it was a paternal society. um, And women had a certain place. And that was, you know, it didn't quite count. Now, Madame Helvétius once said to a friend, this is the last French romance he had, that Ben had this habit of really being close to somebody when he saw them, but afterwards forgot about them. So you know there are times when he just doesn't write to Deborah for months on end. And we don't know why. Um, he's very busy, and his letters become more and more distant as the years go on. It's all about his English family. So I think he's a pragmatist. I think it's like well, I mean, if you want to say an opportunist, you can say that too. But I think it's like well, what's here and what's what's going on here? Life is even more uncertain than it is today. So I I don't you know there's plenty of Plenty of stories of illegitimate children in the 18th century, and plenty of plenty of that. So you know, I I don't I don't I mean that's the way it was. It wasn't. And you read some of the letters that have nothing to do with this book. Go back into that, and they're pretty funny. I mean, marriages didn't always work out. Any other questions? Yes. What about the Hellfire Club in Paris? yeah well that's okay so that's maybe you want to explain that to everybody what that is well it was a kind of like a sex club mm-hmm. they had in mm-hmm. Paris. he frequented it a lot mm-hmm. right right yeah and there were the Georgian race, and it, it, there are other variants of, of that and some of those are preserved in literature you know uh, it was a man's world if you will. Um, it was it was it was that um, so, again, I think he's a pragmatist, you can say opportunist. I think it was what you see here is what, what is important. And the other part is, um, and you can think about people today who are very prominent. Don't forget he was an international media mogul, he was a star, he was a celebrity. You can think about celebrities today, many of them, and look at their personal lives. Um, so, privilege uh, may have a lot to do with that too. Any other questions? Yes? We have another one from the folks online um, about Jefferson and Franklin and um, Uh Paris. Yeah, I did not go into that a lot in the book because the job my publisher wanted was to focus on the women and his personal life. Of course, there's a lot of political stuff in the book and history, which you'll see if you read it. But um, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of unease about that. Let me just put it that way. (laughs) And by the way, Jefferson, if you think about it, and think about this, Jefferson, I mean, the Hemings today, the relatives have come, you know, indicated um, that uh, the DNA is shared with Franklin. So I'm sorry, with with Jefferson. So, you know, this began. So we're looking at the founding fathers uh, today, not through the iconic lens we all learn, the perfect people earlier, but rather, and think about the books that have come out on them, uh, but rather as human beings, as flawed as the rest of us are, which which humanizes them, I think it makes them a lot more approachable, and and by the way, a lot more understandable. Yes, I was going to ask you along those lines, when you finish all this research about him, did you like him? (laughs) Yes, I still like him. I, in fact, I really admire him, and sometimes I love him. He's so funny, he's so witty, he's so adept, he's so sly. Okay. He's such an entertainer, and of course, he's so brilliant and so gifted. You know, when he was um, when he was in England, in uh, France, uh, people were I mean, some of the commissioners Lee and some of the others who he we hated um, were you know saying Dean, Dean, what not? He liked um you know why don't you just go there and say listen america needs the money it's going to help you get rid of england or more enemy. all this he said no he said we have to remember that america is like a virgin a young woman she has to wait for the suitors to come to her so this is his way of saying he had to seduce them in a certain way through his friendship and his conversation so yes I like him very much. And I don't want anyone to ever think that this is a book about bashing Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> um, it, it is a book about the humanization, if you will, of Benjamin Franklin and his personal life. And his personal life is, is in you know juxtaposition to this, this perfect, flawless image we have of him, which is not the same. Um, any other questions? Everyone, everybody online. Um, did Rickman write any regrets that he had, had well No. He did not. I mean, what's really maddening is his autobiography, and he doesn't go through his whole autobiography, but he skims over some really important things. I mean, he does admit that William was a product of one of his sexual escapades and all that. Which, by the way, is pretty remarkable for 18th century memoir. I mean, you don't get that stuff until the 20th or the 21st century. And here he is in the, the low women he associated with and how he didn't you know, get diseases from them and how lucky he was. I mean, that's pretty darn frank. Franklin is a free thinker. And maybe that's part of his genius. Maybe that's how he could invent these things. Maybe it's is, you know, hand in glove with it. He's a free thinker. Somebody in a, in a talk asked me. If, I, if he came back today, would he approve of transgender? Would he accept it? I think he would. I think he would, because I think this is a man who sees reality in a whole other plane. It doesn't excuse some of the other things, but I, I think that's who he is. So yeah. Any other questions? okay Um, been fun talking to you, really. And uh, if you read the book. Um, I can buy it anywhere, bookstore or electronic, whatever. If you read it, do me a favor, please write a review. It helps keep the book in print um, and spreads the word to other people. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Nancy, for that wonderful talk. Um, I feel like I hear a lot about Ben Franklin, but not in so much detail. So I'm very interested to read the book and find out more. Thank you to those of you who are joining us in person for dealing with our unexpected venue change from our normal, thank you for being here with us. Thank you to those of you joining us on Zoom for bearing with any technical issues we may have had. Again, the recording of this lecture will be available in the next few days and it will be sent to you if you've registered. Thank you to those of you who have donated to Francis Tavern Museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission of keeping the revolutionary era alive for people today, especially in New York City. The museum is open Wednesday through Sunday. If you are in town, feel free to come by and visit us. We just opened yesterday our new exhibition, Cloaked Crusader, George Washington in Comics and Pop Culture. If you are interested in staying connected, you can follow us on social media and you can also visit our website francistavernmuseum.org, where you'll be able to see our mailing list and our calendar of events. We have another lecture coming up in just a few weeks on October 27th. If you are interested, you can check that out again on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. So I will end it there then. Thank you all for joining us and have a wonderful evening.